0: Father, thank you that you, we can trust you, that even when there is great difficulty, and disappointment in life, and Father, we can depend on the fact that you know what's best, that you've got our interest in mind, and, Father, you are exactly what we just said, our greatest defender. Thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. May we make much of him today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can... Have a seat, take your Bibles, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible, we have a few Bibles available in the back. If you just have a device, you are more than welcome to jump on your device and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you are on Facebook during the service, take a good picture of me and post it to my account, please. Just kidding. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So, um, (laughs) there's no question there's a very solid chance that the rain is going to kick back up again. We're not worried about that. We're going to stay dry. I might have to get a little louder, but you're used to that, right? So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, it's very interesting. Um, Jeremy and I have a, a kind of a running, well, we have a running conversation all the time about w- what songs are done during the service and, um, and, and how they tie together with the message. And actually, I will publicly say this, Jeremy is an expert at that. It's, it's remarkable to me at times where I'll be sitting in the seat getting ready to come up and preach and see like, dude, he's singing my message. It's perfect. So what it does is it's a, a tool that God can use and the Holy Spirit can use to prepare our hearts for what he's uh, anticipating we're going to learn in Scripture. But Jeremy and I uh, have a running joke at times about the offering song because there are times when it's like we sing three songs, right? you know our the whole thing. We switch it up and you guys lose your mind. But I understand. Okay, so it's, Three songs, and then we do announcements, and then we do an offering song, and then we preach, and then we do a response. We, we, you all know the rigmarole, but it is always funny to me how we can do our three songs and be like, yeah, and everybody's jumping off the seats, yeah, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to jump into this message with great enthusiasm, and all of a sudden the offering song is like, yeah, life is terrible. Like, come on! Let me come running up here happy once. But the song we sang this morning, or the offering song, was very appropriate. It's very appropriate because of the context of what our, 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 our chapter in Ecclesiastes is today. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we're going to work through the first 12 verses this morning. And there's a couple of things that are difficult. There's a couple of things that are wonderful. It's kind of just like life. So look at verse 1 of chapter 9. He says this. This is Solomon speaking again. He says, indeed, I took all of these things to heart. So he's kind of doing a grand review. He's looking back at the previous eight chapters where he said, I ran hard after finances. I ran hard after parties. I ran hard after enjoyment, after things, after women, all of these things. And what I found was it was like chasing the wind because even when I thought I had accomplished something, I never could completely grasp it. And when I thought I grasped it, I opened my hand and there was nothing to show for it. So he says, indeed, I took all of this to heart and, and, and I explained all of it right here. The righteous wise and all of their works are in fact in God's hands. People don't know whether to expect love or to hate. Everything lies ahead of them. So what is Solomon saying? He's saying, hey, listen, this is what I've noticed. The things that come into our lives, every single thing comes from the very hand of God. Nothing happens in our life that doesn't pass through his hands. There is no mistake There is nothing that catches God by surprise. Life is not random. God is in control of what happens, even if we can't figure it out. And let's be honest, most days, we can't figure it out. And just by saying, now listen, we have to own it. All of these things come from God's hand, and that's that's a biblical thought. That's the right idea. The, the, the theological word, which we'll talk about a little bit in a few moments, is sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. It's, it's his authority, his supreme power to do as he wishes, and we believe that. The Bible teaches that, and it drives us nuts. Right? Doesn't it? I mean, you, you get to the end of the day, it's like, well, okay, I want to know what happens tomorrow. Or, or even bigger than that, I want to know why that happened yesterday. What was the point of all that? And not only do we want to know, but somehow we have become people who think we deserve to know. God, you owe me this, explain it now. And that's a dangerous place to be. Or or even worse, we think we could possibly understand it. Even if God was to lay it all out for us, we would still be scratching our heads looking like fools. I mean, we live in an age where we think we can become temporary experts in everything because of YouTube. I changed or I defrosted, I guess defrosted, but I fixed, we'll go with that, it sounds better. Defrosted's like, yeah, you opened the thing. I fixed our refrigerator the other day. All because I found a wonderful YouTube video that helped me do it. And I only cut myself twice. <laughs> YouTube can't heal stupid. Uh, it can fix Gimme Expert temporarily, but. It, but we all think that we can become temporary experts in these things, and what Solomon's answer here is like no, you, you you don't, you won't, and you can't know everything that's coming your way. It's in his hands, not yours. And that should be huge comfort for us. That the sovereignty, this supreme power and authority of God is on your behalf. That God's not impotent to bring about real change. That God is never surprised. God is never left helpless. God never takes a nap and wakes up and says, what did you do? Like parents often do. God knows what's happening right now. He knows why it's happening. He knows what it's going to accomplish for you. He knows what's coming tomorrow even though life is pretty unpredictable, isn't it? Let's, let's jump ahead. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 9. We'll go back to um, verse 2 here in a couple seconds, but I, this ties together with verse 1. It says this again. I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the strong, bread to the wise, riches to the discerning, favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. Let's be honest, man. L- life is unpredictable at best. When you go to watch a race, which runner do you think it is that's actually going to win? The fast one, right? Uh, That does not happen all the time. So you go back to the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. This girl named Lola Jones was the heavy favorite in the hurdles. I mean, everybody expected her to win. She was by far the fastest runner in the hurdles at that event. So she is certainly going to win, right? No, one of the hurdles reached up and grabbed her as she tried to jump over it. Instead of winning, she got seventh place. See, it's not always the, the fastest. It's not always the, the favorite to win. Any of you foliage, fo- foliage. <laughs> Any of you follow college football, there it is. You know that. You saw that yesterday. Oklahoma gets beat by Kansas State. Who's Kansas State? And for some of you, who's Oklahoma? <laughs> Let's just say this. It wasn't supposed to happen. Go back to 1980 in the Winter Olympics. You've got the U.S. against Russia. There's no chance these young Americans are supposed to win this game. But the miracle occurs because the race isn't always to the swift. Because life's unpredictable. Which army is going to win the battle? Well, certainly the one with experience, the, the one that's got the weaponry and the one that's got the size, right? I don't know. Ask Goliath how it went for him. See, life's unpredictable. The battle doesn't always go to the... Strong. Who's going to succeed in life? There's three types of people that he mentions there at the end of verse 11. You've got the, the wise, the intelligent or discerning, and the skillful. Those are the people in high school who were voted most likely to succeed. Right? And then you go back to the reunion, and what do you find out? Most often, you don't see the people who are successful as being the ones who were named in their yearbook as most likely to succeed. Life is unpredictable. Look at verse 12. For certainly no one knows his time. Like fish caught in a cruel net, or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. Life's unpredictable and you're not in control. I mean, what he's talking about there is these sudden events. I mean, we can apply it, Accidents. Tragedy. Those things can come upon us at any moment because life is unpredictable. Before, before I move on, I know you're all like, wow, this message matches the rain outside. It's going to get worse before it gets better, I promise. So just hit, buckle up. But I do want to encourage you that, to, to really understand that all of these things, as verse 1 has said, they are in God's hands. I want to encourage you so that, so that you understand that when things that you're not expecting happen or tragedy occurs, God is not surprised by this and neither should you be. And by all means, what I want to protect you from is when difficulty comes, I, I, want, to, I want to protect you from finding easy answers. You know, there's a lot of easy answers laid out up there, Right? There's a whole group of people who promise that if you, if you do your best and work really hard and you're a good Christian, then you'll experience good health, great prosperity, wonderful happiness, your marriage will flourish, your kids will get straight A's, your marriage will have no problems at all, you won't get sick. It sounds like this just occurred to me, so this is probably not something I should say, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a Christian version of Napoleon Dynamite's uh, campaign slogan. Oh, some of you already know it, all right. Live right and all your dreams will come True. I'm not doing the dance for you, but if you live right, all your dreams come true. What that is, is is a version of Christian karma. And I'm going to tell you this right now. If there is a disease in the local church today, including Uniontown Bible Church, it is that a number of you believe in Christian karma. It's, uh, if I live a certain way, do certain things, don't do Other things, go to church enough, give enough in the plate, then I've set myself up for great success. Just like Job, right? There's no more man, no man more upright than Job. And then his life is taken apart one thing at a time. No, no, no. Just like John the Baptist, right? man who stood in the face of the king and called out evil for what it was and was given a full bank account as a result beheaded in karma says you, you, you what you do is going to determine what happens next what that is saying is you are sovereign and what we need to understand is what solomon's saying is i looked at all of these things what i have realized is god alone is in control And at times it seems like there's this this feeling of unpredictability and it it feels like it might be out of control, but you need to know God is in control even though you may not know what tomorrow holds for you. God is still in control. His next point is way more discouraging. Nobody knows if there's going to be a tomorrow for you. Look at verse 2. And try not to read these verses like Eeyore would read them. Everything is the same for everyone. There's one fate for the righteous, one fate for the wicked. It's the same. The good, the bad, the clean, the unclean, the one who sacrifices, the one who doesn't sacrifice. It's for the good, so also is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also for the one who fears the oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There's one fate for Everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they just die. So so Solomon's a real encouraging guy. He says, what I want you to remember is this. Death is certain, and it doesn't matter who you are. Every single one of us has the same end coming. You can take as many supplements and essential oils as you want. It doesn't guarantee anything. Some of us sitting in this room are going to live till we're 70 or 80 or 110. Some of us won't make it till our 30th birthday. Solomon is saying life is brief, it's a vapor. And what he's going to tell us to do with that is, in light of that fact, live. Every day, well. Let's look at verse four. There is hope for whoever is joined with the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now that's pretty deep right there, right? A live dog is better than a dead lion. We'll talk about that in a second. For the living know that they'll die, but the dead don't know anything. There's no longer a reward for the dead because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, Their envy have already disappeared, and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. What Solomon says is this. Are you alive today? So I should be able to ask this question. It should get a universal response. Ready? Are you living today? All right, good, okay. I just want to make sure that I could hear you, you know, because the rain's gotten loud. So You might want to poke your neighbor if they didn't say yes, make sure that they're okay. If you're living today, It's awesome, and there's an advantage for you. He says, better is a living dog than a dead lion. you got to remember, in their time, the most royal creature of all time was that lion. You saw this incredible lion, and and he says, even a dead lion, a living dog, the the most disgusting of animals. They didn't have pets like dogs back in the day. They were scavengers and disgusting and gross, and everybody looked down on the dogs, and he says, you know what, I'd rather be a living dog, disgusting creature that it is, than a lion, as royal as it might be, that's dead. Why? And I think the answer surprised me when I was studying it. I think as you look at it, the answer to why is obvious. Well, because you're alive and not dead. And the answer he gives us is in verse 5. He says, because the living one knows that they're going to die. So the advantage for the one who is living, the one who is alive today, i.e., you and me, our advantage is knowing that death is coming someday and we can prepare for it. And when I say prepare for death, I don't mean your life insurance policy or your will. All those those are good and necessary things. When I say prepare for death, it means remembering that death isn't the end. The beginning of eternity. And depending on how you prepare for death, it will determine what your eternity looks like. In the beginning, God created us. He created us Good. Planted us in a garden where we got to enjoy his goodness. And then because we are incredible fools and rebellious, we chose to make ourse- much of ourselves instead of making much of him. And every single one of us makes that choice every day. As a result, we're separated from God where we're incapable of returning to God on our own, we just keep getting further and further separated as we try to stack our righteousness as high as we can because what we are saying by stacking our righteousness on top of righteousness, on top of righteousness, we're saying, see, I am good. And God says the most basic thing you need to understand is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When you grasp that truth, then you can come to the reality that God loves you, sent his son Jesus Christ for you. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came to pay for sins, and that he rose again from the dead, proving that his payment was enough, well, then your soul can be cared for. Because, folks, you've got to understand, something: at the end of our lives, when we step into judgment, it says, uh, as it's appointed unto man once to die. So we're all going to die once. After that comes judgment. And there's two options there. You either meet that judgment on your own, or Jesus steps in and covers your judgment for you. So what's it going to be? Are you going to try to pay the price on your own? You can, and that's what eternity looks like separated from God. Or you can accept the payment that has already been provided for you freely by the grace, mercy, love Of Jesus Christ on that cross. So what 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 Solomon says is if you're alive, you have a huge advantage. You have the opportunity to prepare for that day that you will die. But even more than that, he says, not only that, I want you to make sure that while you're alive, knowing that there is brevity in life, I want to make sure that you live each day like it's your last one. Now, I know that's a truck bumper sticker. It's a t shirt. But I do think that there is a biblical aspect of that that we need to dive into. Because what Solomon is calling us to is a level of depth of life that most of us miss out on. Look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with pleasure, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love. All the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun, all your fleeting days. That is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength. Because there's no work, no planning, no knowledge, no wisdom in the grave to which you are going. So instead of falling into despair over the unpredictability of life, over the, the brevity of life, what we need to do is use the unpredictability of life and the brevity of life to drive us to enjoy every minute that God gives us. And that, that depth of enjoying the gifts that he's given us is what Solomon dives into. And, and there's, there's, oh, let's see, I think I broke it into four. One, two, three. There's four different types of joy that I want to go over. Starting in verse 7, he talks about this awesome joy that I call edible joy edible joy. I love that so much of worship is, so much of, of glorifying God, so much of enjoying his gifts is wrapped up in the things we get to taste. Don't you? I love the fact that, that you can take different things and mix them together and have this glorious explosion on your taste buds. What would life be like without taste buds? Boring! Terrible! Last night I came last night after a wedding, I had eaten plenty of food at the wedding, but I got here and my wife walked over with this little tray of delightfulness that was from Papa Joe's and the smell of the nachos and the jalapenos, I was like, Glory, I'm gonna get really fat. There is something amazing about the character of a God who gives us the opportunity not just to eat food, but to eat food that is good. There is something about the character of God that says, I don't want you just to survive. I want you to enjoy. I mean, is there, okay, so a little, little. You're going to see how very unhealthy your pastor is. Okay. I love bacon. Hallelujah. Give me a glory. All right. (laughs) Well, hey, you guys are clapping. All right, I expected a little response. Not surprised, but I like it. I love bacon. Bacon's wonderful. In fact, Thursday, oh, nope, Friday night, uh, my son had a soccer game. We hadn't eaten dinner yet. We went home, my daughter and I are in the store, and I was like, girl, you know what we're doing? Bacon and eggs. And bacon was big and thick and, and really fatty and really, 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 really bad for you, but oh, baby, it was awesome. But I got to experience at the wedding last night, thanks to Mr. Rob Pusteri over here, bacon inside of another of my favorites, macaroni and cheese. Now, the only thing that could have made you slap your mama over that was throw some jalapenos in there, and then you're like, "Woohoo! <laughs> that's food! That's living, but that's, that, that's it. It's Enjoying those moments. Man, we are such goobers. <laughs> Our idea of a fancy meal at this point, because we are running life at such a breakneck speed, is stopping at McDonald's. Uh, And and listen, I do not, i got to be careful, I can get struck by lightning by saying this, I know, the Lord knows, I am not being a heretic, or stopping at Chick-fil-A. I know Chick-fil-A is God's restaurant, I understand that, okay? (laughs) But, But folks, do you really enjoy it when you're scarfing it down and giving yourself heartburn because you're eating, I don't know about you, but when I drive and eat at the same time, I tend to eat as fast as I'm driving, Right? So if I'm in the back road, I'm like, get a little munch there, grab a little fry, but if I'm in the highway, I'm like, all right, all right, all right, it actually intimidates the people around me, I found, so it's kind of cool. But that's what we do, that's our idea of a good meal. Stop it! And, and you don't have to love bacon. You don't have to love steak, medium rare, with butter melted on top of it and garlic. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to love all those things. But but for you, it's something. And it's a gift from God. The food itself is a gift. The ability to enjoy it is another gift. We're not talking about gluttony, even though it may sound like I am. <laughs> and, and, okay, all right, I know, makes people uncomfortable. It says wine. It must have been talking about Welch's grape juice. No, it wasn't. No, absolutely, there, there is a responsibility and a carefulness that must be taken by all of us. The proverb, the wise man sees evil coming and hides himself, is a realistic proverb we must continue to apply in our lives. If it's going to lead us to sin, then by all means, we should walk away and walk away quickly. But God has given to us a precious gift that if used in the right context, with the right motive, is something that we can enjoy and have it roll past the cup in front of us to the God who gave it to us as we worship him for that gift. Probably just opened a huge can of worms, but that's all right. Let's go to verse 8. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let Never let oil be lacking in your head. Not only is he commanding us to live a life that is marked by edible joy, he's telling us you need to live a life that is marked by visible joy. Visible joy. In this time, the, the white garments were a, a symbol of joy. When people were sad, they'd put on their sackcloth, they'd throw ashes on their head. And you remember in the New Testament, you get to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells people who are fasting, he's like, stop stop looking miserable. Wash your face and anoint your head with oil. Why? Is there some special spiritual power in that moment when you anoint your head with oil? Uh-uh. That was, do your hair, throw some cologne on, scrub up a little bit. You stink. Fix it. People shouldn't be able to look at you and be like, oh, he must be fasting because woo-hoo-hoo. It's been a few days since he showered. The idea is, this is a picture of oil. Your face should be shining. There's people who think that in true spirituality, there's no room for joy. There's people who believe that one of the fruit of the Spirit is grumpiness. Grumpiness. No, it's not. I have said it a million times, and I'll say it a million more. There is no other group of people who should be more joyful and happy every day than those who know and love Jesus Christ and have been found by him, adopted into his family. It's like the teacher here is saying, listen, get out the nice clothes from the back of your closet. You got hair, do it. (laughs) And go out and enjoy Life's unpredictable. Brief. Make much of this moment. That leads us to the one that you're all worried about, verse 9 Marital joy. You're not worried. You should be. I'm just kidding. Marital joy. He says, enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life. I I think it's very interesting that here is a man who has 700 wives. And he's like, dude, enjoy the one you love. You read into that anything you want? A lot of people believe that there was one wife that Solomon had way back in the day that that was his wife. And then he began to make his foolish decisions over and over and over again and his challenge here is enjoy life with the wife that you love that relationship between your spouse and you should be so deep and deepening by the day it's both of your jobs husbands and wives and we all need to do better i need to do better and I know, I, I get it. So when you read this, guys, guys, fellas, men, you read this and you're like, enjoy life with the wife that you love all of your days. <laughs> I know what it's talking about. We read this and we instantly think about that beautiful gift God has given us, the ability to serve our wives by doing the dishes, right? Isn't that where your mind goes? Of course not. It goes to that beautiful gift that God has given us in physical intimacy and the sexual relationship within marriage And that is a gift. It's not a gross thing. Um, We're doing a Bible study on Wednesday nights uh, called Mingling of Souls. It's a marriage Bible study. And one of the videos we were watching this week cracked me up because it's true. In the church, we tend to look at the sexual relationship in marriage one of two ways. We either look at it as it's like the greatest gift ever and it becomes an idol or in church, we preach about it and teach about it, and we're like, ew, it's gross, icky, gross. No, don't even talk about it. Don't even talk about it. Save it for the one you love. Well, how is that a gift for the person you love when you're looking at it as being gross? We have a, we have a focus problem. It's a gift that is meant for both procreation and pleasure. We talked about that about a year ago, right? But, but there's something else that I think is important we Remember? The physical intimacy between husband and wife is also meant to mend your souls together. Unlike any other relationship, that's why 1 Corinthians 6 is so very clear that, that fornication should not happen. Because when uh, a man joins a woman outside of the bounds of marriage and then it tears apart, what it does is it affects your soul. But on the flip side of that, within the marriage relationship, it mends your soul together. Matt Chandler uses the phrase, mingles your souls into into one, but but we need to remember that not only do we enjoy it because of that, but we have to remember that that sexual relationship doesn't stand on its own. It, it it's found within the context of a friendship between spouses. So so let me push on this significantly. Well, I, I, ladies, do you know the things your husband enjoys doing during the week? Men, do you know what your wife enjoys doing during the week? I mean, when you fell in love and got to the place where you were engaged it was because you did all of these things leading up to that moment it's amazing to me how, how people get into their marriage and they're like "Yeah, oh, it's, it's just gone the spark is gone well do you write each other notes anymore you wrote each other like 40 notes a day in college do you call her on the phone do you show up with flowers do you bring her the chocolate she likes you let him watch the television show he wants to watch i mean those are all the things you did when you were trying to look good for him so that he would ask you to marry him they're all the things you did guys in order to deceive her into thinking you were something right but then we get into marriage and we're like oh the spark is gone it's because you stopped planting the good seeds start planting the good seeds and find your relationship grounded in friendship but the beautiful part about a marriage relationship you're not just grounded in friendship you're anchored in covenant you're anchored in covenant covenant is a commitment to the other person no matter what i'm not leaving period that is one of the reasons i would say husbands and wives don't ever use the d word divorce ever under any circumstance in any argument because it's not an option Covenant means I am, I have seen, I have seen how crazy you are, and I'm not going anywhere. I have held your hair while you had morning sickness and we're being morning sick. I, I have taken care of you, and this is where I am for sure. My wife has cared for me when I am sick, and I am a horrible patient. I am the biggest whiner ever. And yet she still loved me through that because that's covenant. I've seen you at your worst, and I'm still here. And let me, let me talk about this too. I think the, the reality is when he says, enjoy the wife whom you love. I think oftentimes we allow our minds to wander and Facebook is guilty of, well, Facebook is responsible at times of making us do that. We start looking back at our high school sweethearts and boy, I wonder what's going on in their lives right now and how much better would their life have been if I would have been in it. And look how much cuter my kids are than their kids. And we begin this game of comparison and if we're not careful, that leads us to the trap of looking over the fence and saying, that grass is so much greener over there. And it might be, but there's a reason, because you're not there to jack it up yet. The reason your grass is brown has more to do with you than anybody else. So what would your marriage look like today if you knew the expiration date of your life was tomorrow? Would you take offense at silly things? Would you find yourself owning your sin more quickly so that your relationship was good? Would your good morning kiss be more intentional than a drive-by? How would your life be different? How would your marriage be different so so he's talking about edible joy he's talking about visual joy he's talking about marital joy or uh, yeah and then he's talking about verse 10 creative joy whatever your hand finds to do do with all your strength because there is no work no planning no knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going when he says whatever your hand finds to do he means whatever your hand finds to do And, and i think a beautiful picture of it is what we got to see last night And I'll I'll say it again, the only thing better than knowing that literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of kids and parents were able to come out last night and have an enjoyable time is that there were hundreds of you Uniontown people who went bananas and put together some of these crazy, cool, creative trunks. And I said it last night to a number of you. I don't know who has more fun at this thing. I don't think it's the kids. I think it's you people out there in Smurf outfits and... Charlie Brown and and Bob Ross was here last night. I think you guys have way more fun. And that's a beautiful thing because what it communicates to our community is this. We have the reason to be happy. Yeah, life is unpredictable and it's brief. But we can enjoy the moments of every day. And how do we do that? How do we live so that even though it's brief and unpredictable, we find joy How do we find joy? We understand that in the beginning God created the world so that we would love him and enjoy him and all his good gifts forever. And when sin entered the world and destroyed all of that, it was looking pretty bad. But God loved us, sent his son Jesus to die for us, and he's risen again to save us from our enslavement to sin. He has justified us in his resurrection. And now we can live a life as intended from the beginning. We can enjoy our food and drink. We can enjoy wearing the clothes that we wear. We can enjoy looking like we're having a good time when we really are. We can enjoy our spouses. We can find joy and peace in the creative moments of our lives, even when things are difficult. Because when we see that life is a gift from God, we'll enjoy that gift. When we see that life is short, We'll remember that God's given us eternal life if we're in Jesus Christ. We'll understand that death is just the beginning and it's not the end. When we see that God is in control, man, that is where we find true joy because we'll be able to say in the middle of the most difficult times, my God loves me. My God knows me. My God has rescued me. I've done nothing to deserve any of that. He loved me enough to rescue me in my rebellion. And what he's doing right now, it's got to be for my good. So are you living in light of the brevity of life? Are you enjoying the very gifts that God has given to you? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes just for a moment. I would ask that you just spend just a moment asking God and the Holy Spirit to put his finger in your life to point out to you the areas that you need to do a better job of enjoying. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that's there. I know, God, today was kind of different. Uh, competing with rain, <laughs> um, dealing with fatigue, and then hearing some, some really difficult things. That, that difficulty and trials and heartache and hardship uh, is indeed part of your plan. God, none of us desire that. But, God, we, we, we need to remember that you can be trusted. So, Father, give us the faith that we don't have. Give us the, the encouragement that we so desperately need. Lord, I pray for the one who might be here this morning who doesn't know Christ as Savior. I ask that even in these closing moments as we sing, that they would simply fall down on their faces before you and cry out for you to save them. And for those of us here who don't, do know you, have known you for some time, Lord, may we remember how very good you are to us. And may we celebrate you well. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and matchless name I pray. Amen.